0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at JasonThacker.com weeklytech Weekly Tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by my friend David French, who serves as a senior editor at The Dispatch and a columnist for Time. We talk about his new book, Divided We Fall, American Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation, as well as the role of social media in the divisions we face. David is a graduate of Harvard Law School and a constitutional lawyer and most recently worked as a senior writer for National Review, as well as a senior fellow for the National Review Institute. He is also a New York Times bestselling author and also a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom, where he served from 2000 to 2008 in Iraq and was awarded the Bronze Star. And now let's join our conversation. David, thanks again for joining us here on Weekly Tech. A little background for our listeners today. David and I originally had scheduled to record this podcast on January 6th, right as the riots and the assault on the United States Capitol began. So needless to say, today's conversation is going to speak directly to the role of social media in this attack, but also how we got to this point in society and what to do about it. David, to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your book, Divided We Fall, and why you decided to write it?
0: Yeah, the book, the first paragraph sort of says it all um, as far as like, setting the stage for the book. It, it says that uh, the continued unity of the United States of America cannot be guaranteed. And it gives a reason for it in that first paragraph that there is no truly important political, cultural, legal, social, religious force that is pulling Americans together more than it's pushing Americans apart. And, that, and what I essentially do is I track... All of these major trends that are pulling America apart, and I, and I make an assertion that we can't keep doing this. Um, interestingly, I finished the book sort of towards the middle or end of March, right before the pandemic really had uh, hit us fully. Uh, certainly before the contention and division around the election, and uh, I have to say here, you know, several months later, that if anything, the themes of the book have started to emerge faster than i thought that they would
1: yeah can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you were kind of interested in writing something like this
0: yeah so i grew up in the south i've lived all across the u.s i've I've, i live in the south now i live in franklin tennessee and grew up i was born in alabama raised in kentucky and tennessee um went to law school at harvard and worked in manhattan uh, before coming back home to the south again served in the military in, uh, in Iraq during the surge in 07, 08, and spent a lot of my career as a um, religious liberty attorney, a pro-life and religious liberty attorney for organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom and the American Center for Law and Justice. And uh, one of the things that I noticed, especially after I got back from Iraq in 2008, is not only did I notice that American divisions were growing and growing in a very toxic way, it's it's not like we were becoming more different from each other, but in an affectionate way, like, oh, yeah, I don't understand those Californians, but they're kind of, you know, quirky and nice, whatever. But we were growing in uh, more divided in a, in a particularly toxic and hostile way. And, and what I noticed, because I, I had just come out of a civil war in Iraq where Sunni and Shia were fighting each other to the death, and— we weren't obviously as divided in, as Sunni and Shia in Iraq, but there was a eerie similarity, and that eerie similarity was that in Iraq, if you talk to Sunni um, soldiers or uh, Shia policemen or Sunni tribal leaders, they would not say that they dislike or hate the Shia because of theological differences, even though there were theological differences, or they wouldn't say that they were fighting because of the, you know, political and policy differences, such as divisions of revenue, oil revenue, or power-sharing agreements. Instead, they were fighting because of very real and immediate sense of harm from the other side that, well, the, the Shia had killed my nephew or the Sunni killed my uncle. In other words, the conflict had become the cause of the conflict, if that makes sense, that the, the atrocities and the anger and the fury and the rage— over the differences between them had metastasized to such a point that there was just a continual, just a continual cascade of atrocity and grievance. And what I noticed when I came back to the U.S. is more and more I was hearing that when left would describe its beef against the right or right would describe its argument against the left. Yeah, there are the policy differences over life or religious liberty or health care policy. But a lot of it was, look what they did to Kavanaugh, or look what they did to Covington Catholic, or there was a Bernie bro who tried to shoot up the the Republican members of Congress. Or on the left, you would say, look at this family separation, look at the alt-right killing spree in El Paso, look at the mass murder in Charleston, look at—and so you would see these events that actually occurred— that were actually horrible or actually bad, and they created a sort of a sense that this is what they are like, or this is what their movement spawns, and and it created this sense of mutual grievance and, and anger that wasn't so much rooted in, well, I don't like your tax rate proposal, and much more rooted in the idea that you're bad people. You are bad, evil people, and I have to stop you.
1: I know a lot of us have been glued to social media over the last few weeks surrounding the attack on the Capitol and with the election and the certification, and we're still trying to process a lot of what took place at the United States Capitol. I think in speaking to this kind of uh, breakdown and seeing each other and kind of is in light of the worst examples in many ways, you reference a 1999 paper by Cass Sunstein and argue that it helps to really explain a lot of American culture today. Can you summarize his argument for us and explain why it matters in these divided times?
0: Yeah, this is an incredibly important um, paper. And I don't usually say that about academic papers, but every now and then you run across one that... Really explains a lot of about a lot about our world and a lot about our country. And this is a paper from Cass Sunstein, 1999, and it's called the Law of Group Polarization. And what and what the Law of Group Polarization says is that when people of like mind gather, they tend to become more extreme. And so this is something you just sort of see in life. So, for example, uh, if a group of people get together who are Second Amendment activists or advocates for the Second Amendment, and they start speaking together and they're critiquing, say, Joe Biden's gun control proposals, by the time they finish speaking, by the time they finish deliberating with each other, they're going to usually end up more committed to their position. When like-minded people get together and they talk to each other, they get more committed to their position. Think about it like this. I mean, how many people have gone to a really good Bible study and left it thinking, I love Jesus less? No. (laughs) You, when you go and you're around like-minded people and you are communicating with each other in a spirit of fellowship, it it strengthens your convictions. And so, what ends up happening is that as Americans cluster and they wall off into these like-minded communities, and this is a, a process called the big sort, which name from a 2009 book of that of that title, that we're sorting ourselves into these like-minded communities, we're insulating ourselves from the opposing, thoughtful opposing points of view. And so we're becoming more radicalized and we don't even really realize it because it's not like you're sitting there going, thinking I'm becoming more radical. You're just agreeing with everyone around you and everyone around you seems so sensible. And one of the interesting aspects of it is that the way this whole process works and it can happen so completely that at the end of a deliberation, the entire group can move to become more radical Then the most radical person was at the start of the deliberation. So it's a very powerful force that is making Americans more radical. And you can even see this in some of the ideological data where it used to be that there was this big bell curve where the big bulk of Americans were sort of in this middle, the center right and the center left. And now what's happening is that bell curve is flattening and the extreme edges, which used to be really small, are getting bigger bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger.
1: Yeah. What role do you think that social media has played in that? Obviously, this kind of a unique season where we have social media so prominently involved in most of our discussions, we see so many things play out, even breaking news happening on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and other platforms. What role do you think that social media is playing into that polarization and that tribalization?
0: Yeah. You know, I think what social media is doing is the opposite of perhaps what many of its founders intended. So, you know, one of the goals of the folks who, who created social media, in addition, of course, to making money, <laughs> which um, is the reason most people start a company. But uh, one of the goals of social media was to bring people together, to you could link with people that you hadn't seen in years. You could link with people very closely and intimately that lived across the country from each other. So there's, an, there's a version of the world in which you could say, oh, look at social media breaking down the barriers because- Otherwise, I just know the people in my neighborhood. Otherwise, it'd just be the folks in my church or the folks in, you know, my my faculty that I belong to or my company that I work for. But thanks to social media, I can know everybody. Well, no, what's ended up happening is it's allowed us to create bigger bubbles. That the desire that we have to engage with people who disagree with us, there isn't necessarily that much of a desire. <laughs> that the desire is to engage with people who agree with us and and to share the stories that reinforce our point of view and and to use the extent we engage with the people who are we disagree with. It's not so much to learn from them, but to own them or destroy them. And yeah, in many ways, social media, which was intended for one thing, has become another thing. But I do think we overblame social media for our divisions. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not a historian of social media companies, but I'm pretty sure in 1861, Twitter was in its infancy. And so, you know, America's found a way to divide and kill each other uh, way before social media. And the world found ways to divide and kill each other way before social media. And so I feel like sometimes what we end up doing is we blame this, this amorphous entity, social media, for the problems that are really in our own hearts.
1: Yeah, I think that is very common, especially in the technology space, is we often blame the tools instead of taking the responsibility as human beings. As from a Christian perspective, created in the image of God, bearing that role, that agency, that responsibility, we often kind of offshoot that and kind of put that on. These tools as if they're responsible for making us so polarized and tribalized as a nation. I know many listeners are probably familiar with the increased debates over what's called Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act of 1996 and the claims of politically motivated censorship online. We saw this kind of debate renewed with a lot of the social media companies, such as Twitter, Facebook, banning the president from their services and even the removal of certain apps like Parler from Google App Store, Apple App Store. And in the case of Parler, they ended up losing their hosting ability on Amazon Web Services. Right? Can you give us a little kind of – Background on what Section 230 is. I know you're a lawyer and you've spoken a lot to Section 230 and why you think it's been so widely debated and be kind of the scapegoat for a lot of the activity and the polarization that we're seeing online.
0: Well, you know, one of the things, first things you have to understand is 99% of the people who confidently assert that they know what Section 230 is about either have no idea or are lying to you. It is one of the weirdest public debates I've ever seen in my entire life. It's It's conducted on the basis of as if history doesn't exist, as if the text of the law itself does not exist. It's the weirdest thing. So let me give you a very thumbnail sketch of the history. So people will say things like, uh, section 230 is designed to ensure neutrality in uh, social media moderation. No, 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 no. It's not designed for that at all. Or section 230 is a special giveaway for social media. No, that... People. Uh, anyway, I, I could talk about this forever, but here, here's the, here's the history. If you go back to the early days in the internet, and um, you're probably too young to remember this, but there were these, these particular gated ways to enter the internet. Um, AOL was one, for example. You'd get a disk in the mail, and you'd put it into your computer, and you'd connect to your modem that was actually your phone line, and. And that would be your way into this very gated internet. And, and CompuServe was one version of, a, you know, AOL was one competitor, CompuServe was another, Prodigy was another. And that, that was basically kind of it. That was sort of how you got online. And so a lot of people didn't really know legally the, what to do with this new environment. And so Prodigy and CompuServe ended up being subject to two different lawsuits. One of them, one of the services was sued when somebody posted on the service some information that uh, the plaintiff believed was libelous was uh, was false and intentionally false. So the person sued not only not only the person who put the information online, but also the internet service too, saying that the internet service by hosting the speech was liable for the speech. So mm-hmm. the court looked at it and said, "Hmm, no, the service does no moderation at all. It just lets anything come up, so it's not going to be responsible." For the speech. So they said, nope, the only person responsible is the person who posts it. Case dismissed. A couple of years later, another case comes up, and this was a service that had, I can't remember if it's CompuServe or Prodigy. It was one was Prodigy, one was CompuServe, and I always get which one went first mixed up. But this service moderated. It said, no, we don't want, you know, obscene speech. We don't want to like, you know, racist speech, et cetera, et cetera. And a person sued again, saying, I was liable on this platform. And in that case, the court said, well, because you moderate the, your user speech, it's actually kind of your speech, too, and you're going to be liable. Well, that was like an earthquake. Because what that meant was if I, if I run an a Internet company and I'm going to have like one of the early versions of a comment section or a chat room, I've basically got two choices. Anything goes, which could include porn, which could include incredibly racist speech, which could include communications that would border on bullying and harassment. I have to let anything go, or I'm reliable for everything that's on the platform. So that meant you had a choice between a sewer or no platform at all. Well, this is not the way things are in life. You know, if I run a classroom, for example, at a public university— and, and I say, okay, everyone in my class, you cannot curse in your public comments. You cannot say things that are racist in your public comments. And you have to stay on the topic of the class. That moderation that I impose on that classroom does not then mean that every student who stands up to speak, I'm speaking too. That makes no sense at all. Or if I'm a public, let's say I'm a, a, a town council and folks who watch, say, Parks and Rec, let's say I'm having one of those Town meetings that are in parks and rec, and I say, You speak for three minutes, we're going to ask you to stick to the topic of the meeting, and we're asking you not to curse or engage in racist speech. That doesn't then mean that every citizen who stands up at that town council meeting is giving government speech. It makes no sense. So these two cases just together, we're going to kill a lot of free expression on the internet because who is going to create something that allows anybody to say anything? Because nobody, you know, only the only people who really like to be on those kinds of platforms are some of the people who say some of the worst stuff. And so what happened is um, Congress stepped in in the Communications Decency Act, and it's called the Communications Decency Act for a reason. <laughs> it said, no, you can engage in good faith moderation, like limiting obscene speech and other forms of objectionable speech, and you're not going to be liable. You're not going to be liable for the speech on the platform. And so what that means is this this was like the rocket fuel for free speech online. It's what allows Facebook to be formed. It's what allows Twitter to be formed. It's what allows a comment section to exist on a news article. It's what allows you to post a restaurant review. It's what allows Nextdoor to exist or Reddit or all of these places where people are used to communicating online because it allowed, say, for example, Facebook to say, hey, we don't want any nudity on this platform or on Instagram. We don't want nudity on Instagram because we want younger people to be able to use this platform. And so, but then what happens is because Section 230, just like in offline life, allows people to moderate content that they believe objectionable, that means that people are going to make controversial decisions, that a platform is going to say... I'm yes to one kind of speech and no to another kind of speech. And that makes people mad. And so what they do is they say, well, I want to be able to say what I want to say, and I want the moderation policies of Facebook to be the policies that I want them to be. And if they don't do what I say, then what I want to do is repeal 230 or reform 230. Well, anytime you hear somebody say repeal 230, here's exactly what you say sh- should say to them, especially if it's a Christian. Repeal 230. So you want nudity on Facebook. No, but that's what repeal 230 means. Repeal 230 means is you cannot engage in moderation anymore without legal liability. And so the problem with that is um, what people have done is they say, I don't like the decisions this private company has made. So I should either strip from them the ability to make these decisions or hand them over to the government which is another kind of Section 230 reform. And then in that circumstance, often with conservatives who say, Reform 230, you say, so do you want the Biden and Harris administration defining what Facebook's uh, moderation should be? Well, a lot of people say, no. The problem is that, w- that it's not really a problem. It's just a reality. Private companies have their own speech rights. You, When you use a private company's platform, that you use for free, it's like being invited into their home. And they can tell you what are the rules of the road in their home. And you may not like the rules of the road, but you don't have to be in that home. You don't have to go into that home. You can go to a different home with other rules. And this brings us to the parlay lawsuit. Now, a lot of people look at the parlay lawsuit, and this was Amazon Web Services said, um, we're not going to allow you to use our cloud server hosting to put Parlay out into the Internet. And a lot of people are very worried about that because, well, wait a minute, if Amazon can sort of knock from the Internet, which is it can't really knock people from the Internet because there's other ways. Amazon's not the only way to get online. But Amazon's going to knock you off its service because they don't like your speech. Well, then we got a real problem because Amazon's very liberal. A lot of people want to engage in conservative speech. Does this mean conservatives are going to be suppressed? Mm-hmm. Don't go there on this case, okay? Do not use this case to go there with that argument, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, Twitter is really good at providing perhaps the most surface possible analysis you can have for any given legal issue. Twitter is the worst at analyzing legal issues. Here's the issue with Parlay, and I'm going to read to you a section of Amazon's brief in response to Parlay's lawsuit. This case is not about suppressing speech or stifling viewpoints. It is not about a conspiracy to restrain trade. Instead, this case is about Parlay's demonstrated unwillingness and Inability to remove from the servers of Amazon Web Services content that threatens the public safety, such as by inciting and planning the rape, torture, and assassination of named public officials and private citizens. When you read the evidence presented, here's what happened. Amazon many weeks ago went to parlay and said, We are very concerned. There is speech on here that meets the definition of threats and that this speech is staying up. You're knowing nothing about this speech. Parlay revealed that it lacked the capacity to deal with the volume of threats that were coming up on its platform. In fact, at one point, it was backlogged 26,000 reports. 26,000 reports of speech that should be stripped from the platform. So in other words, not only was Parlay hosting some of the most vile threats, and some of these are repeated in the lawsuit, it was indicating it didn't even have the ability to police what was on its own platform. And so Amazon, which, by the way, is comprised of, its employee ranks are comprised of American citizens, it did not want its corporate resources used to promote speech such as, Jack Dorsey will die a bloody death along Mark Sutherland, that's what they, it's a, a misspelling of Zuckerberg. It has been decided and plans are put in place. Remember the photographs inside your home while you slept? Yeah, that close. You will die a sudden death. So they couldn't get that stuff off. And so why would Amazon host that information? Why? And so in other words, a lot of people are looking at Parlay as a free speech martyr. Parlay is responsible For its total inability to control its own platform, why would Amazon be obligated to host that? Why would you make an American citizen continue to host that speech? That makes no sense to me, especially in a conservative movement that just spent uh, several years saying, hey, wait a minute, bakers shouldn't have to bake a cake, custom design a cake to celebrate a, a gay wedding, or florists shouldn't have to custom create floral arrangements to celebrate a gay wedding. And then you're going to turn around and say, well, Amazon, you have to host on your server's speech that says, hang that inward word ASAP. That's what we're talking about. So be super careful when you
1: create free speech martyrs. But this is what we're talking about. So, David, do you think that Section 230 then is – obviously, you still think it's a useful statute and it's not something that should be repealed – I know a lot of people are asking for reforms, and you've talked a little bit about some reform um, and kind of what's actually behind that. But do you think that Section Two Hundred and Thirty needs to be updated at all in light of kind of the modern internet that we have today? I, I've not seen a coherent updated. I, I've not seen a proposal.
0: You know, look, I'm not going to say that Section Two Hundred and Thirty is some sort of divinely inspired statute. <laughs> um, so I'm always open to legal reforms that could better accomplish sort of in advance, that could better uh, you know, advance fundamental First Amendment values, for example. But um, most of the reforms that ideas that I have seen, what you usually end up with is on the left, you'll usually, usually see, here's what we want. We want social media to censor more speech. Okay, that's sort of a on the left, you see more of that. We want social media to be stronger in censoring misinformation. And so if conservatives worry about um, the current policies that Facebook or Twitter has censoring too much, well, if they hand a lot of power to the government, well, if they're more progressive or liberal governments in power, they'll see more speech taken down from online, which is typically what conservatives don't want. So conservatives say we want less censorship online. We want more speech online. Well, one of the problems that you have with that is we have these little experiments in other social media companies that censor less. We just talked about one of them, Parlay. That is not a site that you want your kids on, (laughs) y'all. Wow. It is rough. And then there's another one called Gab. Gab in some ways could possibly be even worse. So you know, a lot of conservatives for these very short-term reasons are saying, I want to be more free to speak. And then when they create these environments where they do have more freedom, what ends up happening is that those places get scary. They get scary fast. And so be careful what you ask for. Um, and then the other thing that I have to, I feel like I have to mention, a lot of this desire to get social media to, to censor less isn't being driven by people like your local pastor who is being having their speech taken down because they're proclaiming Jesus. A lot of it's being driven by conservative trolls who spread disinformation online and personal attacks online and are constantly skating on the edge of the terms of service of these platforms and sometimes lose their platform. Now, occasionally you'll see somebody, very rarely, who's engaging in basic pro-life speech and is punished. Or, you know, that's that's very, very rare. It's a general matter, uh, the people who are getting banned from these platforms are some of the worst people you've ever met. How do we know this? Because they go to Gab and to Parlay and they turn those places into raw, open sewage. It's not like if you go to Gab that all of a sudden, like, a church meeting is breaking out. Now, there might be Christians on Gab, but if if you have a weak stomach, I would not go on to Gab. And so that, that's one of the reasons, one of the ways we can tell that what we're talking about isn't some sort of comprehensive shutdown of winsome, wonderful Christian speech. <laughs> that's not happening. What's being shut down is trolling uh, misinformation, personal attack behavior, often blatantly racist, that then pops up again on these other places on the Internet. And you don't want the whole Internet to be like those places.
1: Yeah, exactly, and that's one of the ways that I've heard best to describe Section two thirty. In many ways, is it was created to encourage uh, good faith moderation. This type of content moderation, if you do remove it, you end up losing that, Um, and many of these places won't moderate, and then it kind of turns into what you said—a lot of sewage um, and really bad places that we wouldn't want not only our kids to go to, but even adults uh, to check out. Even though I'm
0: a public figure who has to engage with the news. I don't have a Gab account. I don't have a parlay account. I don't want to be exposed to that constant hatred. Um, I have no interest in that. It's just bad for the soul.
1: I know in your book you kind of cast a vision about what what it could look like to overcome or even reconcile some of these sharp divides in our culture but while we still have really diverse views on crucial issues like politics and ethics and technology how do you envision uh, American society maybe coming together or being able to talk to one another rather than just seeing each other as simply avatars to go into battle with
0: yeah you know one of the things I talk about in the book and it, it's not a it's not a quote-unquote Christian book. In other words, it's not written for a Christian audience. It's written for an audience of Christians and non-Christians. But one of the things that I I talk about in the book is, and I use the word tolerance, and and hang with me for a minute, because I know a lot of Christians are kind of tired of hearing the word tolerance, mainly because it's been twisted around a lot in our culture, to somehow sometimes mean, you've seen a lot of intolerance in the name of tolerance in a, in a lot of secular culture. But what I mean by tolerance, and I'll give you a story. This is from a pseudonymous writer by the name of Scott Alexander. He, he talks to his, some of his progressive friends. He lives in a blue area of the country. And he says, are you tolerant? And they said, well, yeah, I'm tolerant. I, I love all people, regardless of race, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, ethnicity, et cetera. And then so Scott then responds by saying, well, what's wrong with those people? And they said, what do you mean what's wrong with them? Nothing is wrong with them. And then Scott responds, then what are you tolerating? In other words, tolerance implies that there's something you don't like, (laughs) that there's something to tolerate, that there's something that in other conditions you would, you, you reject. So tolerance does not mean affection. That's the word that is, that's how it's often been misinterpreted. Tolerance means acceptance often in spite of vices and flaws and problems. And so what we have to do is we have to rediscover the value of tolerance properly understood. We are in this together as a um, as a national family, and, and, and we are going to have to tolerate things in each other that we dislike. So we, we just have to start with that basic thing. That's not utopian. I'm not saying kumbaya. <laughs> I'm not saying we're going to all love each other. What I'm saying is, can't we at least decide to tolerate each other across differences? And in the absence of that basic value, it's really hard for us to do anything else because it's, it's sort of a two-step process. One, you have to decide to tolerate others. And then the second step is there are policies that you can act that can facilitate that process, such as, for example, federalism. Let California be California. Let Tennessee be Tennessee. Free speech. Defend the rights of others that you would like to exercise yourself. Religious liberty. Due process. All of these things, when equally applied, apply to your opponents as well as to your friends. Free speech empowers the speech of your opponents. Due process prevents arbitrary punishment of your opponents. Religious liberty allows your opponents or your people who disagree with you to say things you believe to be false about religion. But these are values that also attach to yourself as well. And so it's essentially what we have to do is we have to rediscover tolerance and embrace pluralism because, y'all, one side or the other is not going to grow so powerful that it can crush entirely the opposition. We are a very closely divided country. There is no way to unify that says, I will sweep the field and destroy my enemies, the only way through is to rediscover the virtue of the past, where our founding fathers created a constitution that allows for widely divergent um, communities to live together in peace.
1: I think that's really helpful counsel for us as an entire society, not just as um, Christians and as, as the church itself. As we close out our time today, I wanted to ask you for a couple maybe books that you might recommend. If people wanted to dig a little bit deeper outside of your book on some of these issues, whether it kind of ranging from social media and technology and society down to 230, but even getting into some of these really helpful concepts of a proper understanding of tolerance and what that looks like are there any books that you might recommend as kind of a next step for listeners? I think a
0: great book for understanding tolerance and for learning how to grow up and live and function in a pluralistic society where there are widely divergent points of view about matters of eternal significance, not just matters of political significance, is The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. That book is just excellent. I refer to it in my book. Um, Also, uh, this is a book that came out several months before mine, Alienated America by Tim Carney. It's one that does a really nice job of talking about how civil society has really taken it on the chin in the United States of America and that we've lost a lot of the civic associations and church affiliations that have made Americans more emotionally and politically resilient, where we're less and made Americans less likely to see sort of politics in such catastrophic terms. And then the other one is a book called a couple of years older than that called Our Kids by Robert Putnam. And this book is fantastic at showing how what we do- how dysfunctional communities and generations of poverty and marginalization and and problems of oppression can imprint themselves on children and can create an entire class of kids who are beginning life with certain with disadvantages that are difficult to overcome uh, as adolescents and as adults, and it's very powerful and poignant.
1: I think those are really helpful resources, and for listeners, we'll make sure to include a link to those in the show notes so you can grab those books, as well as David's new book, Divided We Fall, which I highly recommend you picking up a copy David, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Weekly Tech. I'm really grateful for your work and also your voice in the public square. It's a very calm and collected voice often and someone that I think we can really seek to emulate in a lot of our conversations online. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I, I, I'm
0: glad you qualified with calm and collected often because sometimes <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I'm not as calm and collected. But uh, I appreciate it very
1: much, and it's it's been a real uh, privilege to to join you. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also that they help to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with David and learn more about his work, including his new book, Divided We Fall, in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning, which is designed to help you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day as well as to stay up to date on the top tech news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.